Greetings. In the precious name of Jesus, we're reminded this morning that that we have joy that is mixed with sorrow, and we have pleasure that is mixed with pain. We do not want to forget there is joy, and there is blessings, and there are gifts that the Father gives. But we also remember we live in a fallen world that at this time, this world is in conflict. And we find ourselves in that conflict ourselves. We could wish and we could ask the Father, may there be no conflict, but the Father will not give us that. He will give us a rock. But in that conflict, there will be, uh, that, that, that's, uh, I probably said that wrong. He will not give us a rock because the scripture says he doesn't. But theoretically, or he will not give us because it's his will. It's his will that we seek him and find him. And it's his will that we do find him. So, yeah, thought of a Dave's brother Tim, and um, they probably could have asked and probably did ask for some other things, but this is God's purpose and plan for them. Okay, so why don't we stand, if you could, for a word of prayer? If you stand again. Lord, you are the source of life. Lord, death is an intrusion in this world, and it's a temporary intrusion, and death is not natural. Life is natural, and you are life, and you are the source of life. And we come to you, Lord, this morning, thanking you, Lord, in your wisdom that you have given us and all life who ask and seek you for it. You have offered it to us. And so we just thank you for that. We pray, Lord, this morning as we look into your word, as we seek direction and uh, perspective from you, we just pray, Lord, you would uh, prosper our time together this morning, we as your people. We as your gathered people, gathered for a purpose, Lord, to encourage each other and to um, point each other to you and to um, to warn each other and, Lord, also to give us strength for the coming week and also direction for the future. We have gathered, Lord, for all those purposes, and I pray, Lord, you would uh, give us that bread that we need this morning for for that purpose, Lord. So thank you, Lord. I just pray for each one here that give us open hearts and alert minds as we seek you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
may be seated. <laughs> this morning, I, uh, I'm, I'm putting the study on Timothy that I had started on hold for at least a time. I, I'll probably pick it up at some point, but uh, not for right now. This morning is the first of two messages that I had planned about a subject that I have been thinking about and trying to understand for a long, long time. It's about a specific problem that I have been seeking answers for. In fact, I started messages on this topic already in the past and scrapped them, not feeling I was understood or prepared or and so on, and I don't actually know if I feel that way yet this morning. <clears throat> One difficulty I have is this this message this morning is not very practical. It's theoretical. It's it's what you call a virtual message. It's a, it's 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 about a the, the topic I have this morning is about a a, um, I'm trying to. I'm studying for words like virtual. <coughs> excuse me. Like okay, let's give me an example. Maybe um, someone says, "I don't believe in anything except what you can measure and test and weigh by science." And then, uh, then a man, then a man was asked, "Well, do you love your wife?" Love is one of those. Concepts that you can't touch and weigh and measure, but you can see it. <laughs> I have a topic such of that nature this morning. It's a reality. It's something we live in. It's a little bit like water to a fish. We just are in it. We don't think about it, and yet it's it's a reality, and I like to uh, explain it. And then the second message will be much more practical. It will be the outworking of this, of this virtual uh, concept. Some Christians would say it's wrong for me to think the way that I'm going to be describing this morning. They would say it's divisive. They say that Jesus prayed that we would be one. Others would say it is necessary and right to do this. But the scriptural reasons of why it's right were never very clear to me in the past. We understood, yeah, it's right, you need to do that, it is true. But the scriptural underpinnings were not ever, never very clear. Only that it tended to be necessary and it tended to work. And that I agreed. But this is a concept that works for unbelievers as well as believers. So then the question came to me, well, is then that means, is that a biblical or a spiritual truth? Or is it just simply a carnal truth of the world that then we try to integrate to the Christian thought and use it as part of the arm of the flesh and not a spiritual truth? All those thoughts went to my mind as I thought of this. <clears throat> so what am I talking about? I'm pretty sure no one, none of you has any idea. <clears throat> I'm talking about having an identity. 
a spiritual and a social identity, individual and corporate identity. Identity, understanding and knowing who you are and what you believe and how you fit into a group and how you fit into history and knowing where you are going individually and corporately. That's, is that important? <laughs> it's a question. Is it important to understand and know who you are and what you believe and how you fit into a group and how you fit into history and knowing where you are going individually and corporately? The reason I've been thinking about this for a quite a while is specifically for missions. And we're thinking of a city church in Lebanon, possibly for the future, if God so gives us that bread. The idea that when you, if you're going into another culture like that, you have better know what you believe and who you are and what is right and wrong. And those are the concepts, those are the burdens. And I'll, I'll explain that as I go along, why, why that's a burden to me. But this morning, I'm going to try to unpack something that I titled, and this is the title, The Anatomy of an Identity. And like I said, this message is to prepare us for the second message, which I plan to flush out that identity then. Now, I've heard messages titled the anatomy of a brotherhood or a fellowship and other anatomies, and we have heard messages like that. And those are clear Bible truths that have a huge impact on people's lives. Does the anatomy of an identity have a huge impact on us? Well, I have seen multitudes of individuals and families and churches exchange one identity for another identity. And like I said, if we're going to pursue a city church, we have better understand clearly who we are in Christ and what we believe. Okay, I'm going to flesh all those questions out as we go along. And I, I am struggling to try to get all these concepts together. And we'll get into the scripture later on and explain how, it, how, how, uh, how it's a scriptural truth. But why is it important? I have two reasons at least why it is important to have an identity like this. A strong identity. Let's say it this way, a strong identity. Number one is possessing a strong identity shields you from discarding what you believe to adopt another identity. 
Now, the easiest way to spot that, this concept, the easiest way to spot that is when a young person goes to college. And they leave whatever environment they have and they go to another environment completely that has multiple persuasive and invasive identities that are very, very different than the person going into that situation. And if he or she goes in with a strong and settled identity, they can, most times, go through that thing and not be persuaded differently because they went in knowing who they were, what they believe, who they belong to. Now, that's the most, um, that's, if they go, let's say it this way, it's the opposite. If they go in and they are vague, they are uncertain, they're searching, and they go into that environment, they will very likely be persuaded to something different. Now, that is an extreme experience. Most of us will not face that, and yet that same situation faces us in lesser levels all the time. That reality is played out in our lives, and we are influenced in lesser ways to doing the same thing. And the greatest vulnerability is young people. And the vulnerability is greater to those who are outgoing and are desires, desirous to impact the world. The vulnerability is greater with those than those who are just more content to stay home and just do the status quo. So, possessing a strong identity shields you from harm or from discarding your identity. And then the second one, why I think this is important, is possessing a strong identity causes you to become to be more effective in ministry. This is true in any ministry. I'm going to give you two examples of that, and one of them is probably some of you are familiar with, Gary Miller, in his book about church matters, um, gave the story about this family that was in the city and with the, with the desire to start a church in the city, and they were a ministering family, they were a very loving family, and they were they really gave themselves to ministry. But it didn't seem like they were very effective. And uh, he was wondering why. And it was not. It was not because of lack of love and care and exertion. But then he seen that they were also compromising their former identity. They were compromising to to bridge the gap. So they were they were they were. Um, I say fudging on their identity of their practices and their beliefs and so on. And then he said, but there was another religious group in the city that was successful, and that was the Muslims. And the Muslims had a clear identity, and they stood on it, and they were more effective. Interesting. There's another example that I heard from years ago when the Mennonites went to Japan. And Japan is a very, very, very different culture than America. And 
as they went to Japan, uh, one of the things that the Mennonites had is their, their uh, Bible beliefs, and one of them was the head covering. I'm going to just specifically just bring that one out because that's the one we're going to address. And they came in, and they were semi-apologetic about that. And they were not successful, and they were not successful in actually bringing that Bible truth into the culture. I say, well, why not? You know, it, well, it was anti-cultural. It was really against their culture. But there was another religious group that was very anti-cultural that was successful. That was the Seventh-day Adventist, and one of their beliefs is is no caffeine. That means no tea. And you know anything about Japan and tea, that's synonymous. They stood on it, and they were still successful. In, in, in their ministry, and I don't know how big their, their movement was, but they were much, much, much more successful. Possessing, so the point is here. Possessing a strong identity causes you to be more effective in ministry. Of course, the question then could come, well, if that phenomenon is true for sinners and for people that are clearly wrong, I ask the question, is that is this just a carnal way of doing spiritual truth? That's a question. That's a good question to ask. Is it just simply, it works, so let's use it? Or is it simply, it's how... God made mankind to function. He uses methods to convince men as well as spirit. Which does he use? Does he use the spirit to convince men or does he use methods? And I say it's both. He uses both. And so we have to be clear in this whole question. As we, as we are looking at this topic, it is the spirit of God that convinces men. We, we, we know that. It's... It's by, it's by grace you are saved. It's through faith. It's not of yourself and it's not of works. Okay. But, he also uses methods. And one of those methods that I'm proposing this morning is the method of, of a strong identity. <clears throat> now, let's look a little bit. As we're looking at this, what is actually identity? We need some understanding what identity is. And I actually don't have a complete answer to that, but uh, I'll do our best. Our identity is not something we think about much. And it's mostly we don't need to because identity is simply, simply something we have, it's something we are, it's something we possess. It's a normal part of life. It's always been there. There are three types of identities I want to identify this morning, and there might be many more, but those are the, the thoughts that I had. First of all, there is personal identity. You have your personal identity. Now, you don't want this identity to be stolen, that's a negative thing. People can steal identities and use it in a very, in a, uh, it's big business. But our personal identity begins when we are born. I was born 
And I was, my parents found out I was a boy. They gave me a name that corresponded with that. And my name became a part of my identity. I remember, I don't know where I saw this, read it somewhere. I'm just going to describe to you how our name is part of identity. There was, uh, I'm trying to think of how to describe this. In a Europe somewhere, there was, there was this woman in New York that this other man was pretty sure she was a spy. I think it might have been England and maybe she was a Soviet spy or something like that. And he approached her and talked to her and she, he thought he knew she was, but she, she completely faked, well, she, she, she's not, that's, no, she's not her, it's not her. She denied that she's that person. She acted like he had, she had no idea what he's talking about. It's like when you call, is so-and-so there? He said, well, no, no, you got the wrong number. That's what she said. You got the wrong number. Okay, so he walked away, and she walked away, and he knew her name. So he just called out her name, and she, without thinking, turned around. She responded to her name. Even though she was undercover by impulse, she responded to that because that was her identity from little on up. So you have a personal identity. And then your other personal identities, you identify with your gender. Gender. Then you identify with your last name, which identifies you with the family. You identify with your country. You identify as a U.S. citizen. You get an occupation. You identify as the farmer, clerk, whatever else occupation you have. You might get married and you have children. You can identify as a father or a mother. You can identify with your religious. You identify as a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim. And there's multiple, multiple layers of identities, and those are all personal. We are immersed in them. Institutions also have an identity. And you say school or church or post office, you are identifying a certain type of institution. And when you say elementary school or homeschool or technical school, you are identifying a school a little more specifically, and you can include increase that resolution as far as you want to, down to a particular school. Then... And so uh, institutions are identified by names and purposes and et cetera. And then movements have, or ideas have an identity. This is actually the one that we will be focusing on the most. Movements can be social or political or religious. And I'll give you some examples. Communism. Or socialism is a social and political idea. So is capitalism and nationalism and Pentecostalism and pietism. These are all labels given to a particular way of viewing the, viewing and acting out in the world. It's, and it's a normal human thing to identify that particular category of acting out. And then people identify with these movements. 
and then they become a socialist or a charismatic. They become it. And the idea is, well, do the, do people have ideas or do ideas have people? <laughs> That's a debate. That's a Sunday afternoon discussion. The point is here, we all identify as someone and we all identify with things. Now, it's not too uncommon at some point of life for a person or an institution to have an identity crisis. Identity crisis. You know, stolen identity is when someone steals your identity. Identity crisis is when you're not sure who you are or what you're here for. Webster's gives that uh, definition of identity crisis as a state of confusion in an institution or an organization regarding its nature or direction. And that's an institution can be all personal, a state of confusion. This is the risk that many young people face when they go to college. All the normal landmarks are gone. All their normal life is gone. And in its place is a completely new environment and creates that turmoil. And a similar situation exists for missionaries and outreach churches. Normal is not normal anymore because you're working with a completely different environment and culture and people. And there can be an identity crisis in that situation as well. Okay, let's look at scripture. And I want to look at identity in scripture. And I wanted to show you that I'm not making up these things about identities, okay? Turn to Acts chapter 11. Anatomy of an identity. And we'll start reading at verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all with purpose of heart that they should cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people were added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when they found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that for a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first, in Antioch. So we have disciples. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. He is a follower. Um, Webster says that a disciple is a convinced adherent of a school or an individual. So you have disciples there. 
And it's in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. You know, here in Antioch, a new thing had emerged. Something that had never been seen before. I don't know if you caught it or not. They first went to Antioch, preached to the Jews only. And then somebody came and they preached to the Greeks. And there was a new body developed. Both Jews and Greeks became followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus. And the movement was large. Much people were added to the Lord. They taught much people, it's recorded. And it was sustained for a whole year. There was a groundswell of activity going on in Antioch of Jews and Greeks of a large number. And a long time, there were meetings happening. There was preaching going on. There was teaching. There were baptisms. There was activity. And a normal human thing happened. I don't know who gave him the name. It doesn't say. Did the disciples? Did the community? Did the government? Did their enemies? We don't know. But they called themselves, I mean, they were called Christians. It seemed like someone from outside called them Christian. Now, that's a little Christ. But the name is, the fact is, they were given a name, an identification. And and that name stuck. In fact, the Christians, I, I don't know who gave them the name. It seems like it came from outside, but they began to use it. And I'm going to read, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, I'm going to just read a few verses. This is how um, Peter used it. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. If you're a thief, and you suffer the consequences, take it. But if you're a Christian, and you suffer for it, rejoice. Glorify God for the privilege of suffering as a Christian. And so we see that Peter, as a Christian, so he identified, self-identified, and the people of God as a Christian. And not only, not only did the Peter accept and adopt the identity of a Christian, the unbelievers did too. And you can turn, we're in Acts already, probably just turn over to 26, Acts 26. Starting at verse 24 to 28. And Paul is before King Agrippa, I believe, and Festus was there. And as he thus spoke for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, but learning doth make thee mad. But he said, Paul said, but I'm not mad, most noble fetus. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness, for the king knoweth these things, before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, 
Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Agrippa used the language of the day. He, he knew who Paul was, and he knew what Paul believed. He knew that Paul believed that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus was the Son of God. He, he understood all that, and he knew that if he were persuaded, he would be called a Christian. He would have that label on him. And for reasons of his own, he declined. The point is the general populace, the whole way up to the king, recognize that label Christian. Those people who believe and live like that are Christians. And when the name Christian was given to anyone in the populace that knew anything about it, a concept came in their mind. Christian. Oh, they believe in Jesus. They believe, and, and, and of course, some of them actually believe wrong things about Christians. Some of them believe that Christians um, practice in orgies and cannibalism because of the rumors that went out. And But the fact is, when you said the lame Christian, something came to your mind. Maybe it was only slander, but it was a label. They had a clear identity. They knew who they were, and they understood their purpose in life. They were Christians. They had an identity. Now, we wish that life were not so complicated, that all we would need today is that one identity. We're Christians. But very quickly, back, back even in Bible times, we had people who were called Christians who were not Christians. In fact, Paul called some of them, he called them false apostles. He called them deceitful workers. Uh, there were probably some other names he called them. I didn't study them all. Um, John said that if anyone says, I know him, which is to say, I am a Christian, but doesn't obey him, is a liar. So in the process of time, other identities arose to identify Christians. And the question now can be asked, is that good? Is that right? To have other identities rather than just Christian. I used to think not. I have been told that we should not use labels. We shouldn't use labels like Mennonites or Amis or Brethren. Labels are bad because they stereotype people. In fact, the Bible teaches against using that kind of label. Paul chided the Corinthians for saying, I am a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Apollos, I'm a follower of Peter, and I'm a follower of Christ. And those things created division. Don't, don't do that. That's, that's, that's what the Bible says, and that's the way I understood it. It causes divisions. We follow Christ. Any other label is following men, and don't do it. So I, I, I believe that fully. We are not, we are not Mennonites or Baptists or Amish or Horning or Eastern or Mid-Atlantic or anything. 
we are just, this is what I believe, we are just born-again Christians who follow, who love the Lord and follow him. Now, you know what I did. I used a label besides Christian to identify myself. I was doing the very thing I said we shouldn't do. I said, born again Christian is a label. Because it identifies, it, it, not identify, it, it discriminates from the billion or so Christians that do not claim to be born again. It's not part of their belief system. It's not part of what they preach and teach. It, it separates you from what we call nominal Christians, which is another label. I remember talking to Myron Weaver's brother, Dale, and explained to him that names were mostly that names, it's wrong to have names, and then he tried to explain to me that names are methods of identification and they are, they have a place. And you can't get away from it. And so, interestingly enough, I discovered later on that I was actually identifying myself, just not the way I, yeah. So I was identifying myself as a born-again Christian. So, there are two billion Christians in the world, that's the statistics. From the 120 who were in one accord in the upper room, there are now 2 billion, except we are not of one accord. That, that, is, a, that is a problem. And that was very quickly became, became the case. But I began to understand okay, let's say it this way. We are not now in one accord. Therefore, labels are used to identify. And that I began to understand after some time. Yet, I was not sure if it was God's heart to label and identify people. I wasn't sure. Because you had that scripture there in Corinthians that seemed to discourage that. Is it right? to identify people with labels. Until I saw it in the scripture, and then I saw it everywhere in scripture. So you can turn to the first one in, uh, that I want to use today is Revelations chapter 2. And this is Jesus speaking to the churches. And in verse 6, as Jesus is speaking to the churches and, and giving them some reprimands, but he says in verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then also in verse 15 of the same chapter, where he's speaking to another church, So thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So in verse 6, we have the deeds, and in verse 6, 15, we have the doctrine. There's the doctrine, and there's deeds of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus hated it. Now, we 
Who are the Nicolaitans? What doctrine or teaching or practices did they do, did they have? Today, we don't know. I don't know if anybody really knows. I mean, there's some ideas. There's some people presume they know, but we're not sure who they were. We're not sure what they believed. Um, but Jesus... But here, here's the point. The local church that they were talking to actually didn't know. They didn't know. And so Jesus, rather than saying, you know, the Nicolaitans, this is what they believe, and this is what they practice, and I hate it. And he didn't do that. He put a label on them. He put a name, identification name on them, and said, you know who they are. You know their doctrine. You know their deeds. I hate it. And he just gave them label. So Jesus used labels for people, belief systems. Jesus summarized a belief and practice system, a belief and practice system, the whole encompass of some person probably. His whole belief system and his whole practice and the practice of a whole group, and he brought the whole thing into a name. And said this, I hate it. Paul did that too. He said of the Cretans, Cretians rather. It's a people we don't know about today. But the Cretans were a people on an island. And he said they are liars and they're evil beasts and they're slow bellies. The Cretan. Now he gave them description of what they, but he, he gave them a name. This group of people was living in a geographical geographical area and had a prominent cultural characteristics. And these were the characteristics. The Christians. You can turn to, uh, well, I'll just say the verse here because only I just want to bring one part of one verse out in Luke 20, verse 27. And it's Jesus interacting with people. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which denied that there is any resurrection. And then they asked him a question. This group of people. There was a group of people called Sadducees. One of the characteristics of this group is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that when you die, and that's it. You're done. You're, you're, that's the end of your life. If you would walk up to a Sadducee and you would talk to him, you don't, might not know him as an individual, but if you knew he was a Sadducee, you could know this man does not believe in the resurrection because he is identified with this group. You could be pretty certain of that. He belonged to this group, and that is one of their group beliefs. So we see that a name, a label, is put on a people group, and a doctrinal belief system. So I, for one, can no longer accept the reasoning that putting a name to a belief is following a man to a belief system. It's not necessarily so. It's a way of identifying or describing something. And again, it's that identity which is its a virtual thing. It's not something you can put your finger on, your thumb on. I once went to a store, 
when we had little children and a store I was delivering to, and I asked the clerk, it was probably one of those Benton Dent stores, and so they didn't have everything, but I asked him if they have any Pampers. And she rightly said, no, we do not have any Pampers, but we have disposable diapers. <laughs> now, yeah, that's what I wanted. But we call disposable diapers Pampers at our place. I don't know what you call them at your house. But Pampers is a brand name. It was probably either one of the first ones or it was one of the first ones that really popularized disposable diapers. And so disposable diapers became known as Pampers. That's how this product basically got its name. You can do the same thing with Kleenex or facial tissue. Same thing, and many others have the same thing. That's how religious systems get names also. The, the name does not mean, if, if it has the name of a man, it doesn't actually mean that that man was the originator of that belief system. It may have been someone who majorly popularized it, and then it got a label. So today, when you say the Moravians, probably some image comes right up in your mind. When you say the name Moravian, the Moravians is actually an area, Moravia. Moravians was a group of people that had a leader and had some significant characteristics that was a big enough movement that down through the ages... If you do any study in history, Christian history, you will know who the Moravians are. So I say Moravians, something came to your mind. You identified them. Now, they're all different in our minds, but there's an identity there. That is actually how the Christians got their name. And it may have come from the enemies or at least the people in the community who observed them. So in time, as more differences arose in, in Christianity, we had a multiplicity of names and labels affixed to general perspectives and views and beliefs and practices. And so the early Christian had lots of them. They had the Donatists, the Arians, the Catholics, the Marcinites, the Montanists, the Gnostics, the Cathars, and Novatians. And on and on. And today we have the emerging church, which, you know, emerging church is very specific. It's, it's when you're integrating postmodern beliefs into the Christian belief system. And they have a name, identification. Rick Hess went before the cast board to join, to join the CASP system. You know, they had a grouping of 19 different, 19 different chapters. I don't know what they call them, but they had a number of different, and we wanted to become one of them. But there was one problem. He came with the wrong name. When he officially requested to be permitted to, permitted to join, he had a name they didn't like. You know what that name was? He said, are you one of those charity churches? No way. <laughs> and he had to describe or explain that, well, we have been on diverging paths for at least 10 years. 
Well, if you're not a charity church, what are you? Born-again Christians, right? <laughs> well, that work. Just like the Baptists down the street. Because the Baptists, born-again Christians, probably would not want to join that CAST program because there are significant different beliefs. So names broadly identify yourself with the group, with the position, with the belief system, and with practices. That's what names identify you. And you can take the name Pharisee, what comes to your mind when you think of the word name Pharisee. That's actually a, it identifies a group of people that had some specific characteristics. They were not all bad, but they had significant characteristics that made them pretty negative in scripture. So, um, so different different labels that we have here. You know, I think of the Methodists. You know, the Methodists were not named after a man. They were named because of a system under John Wesley where they'd be very methodical. And Calvin Calvinists were named after a man. But. You have Methodists, you have Quakers, you have Pentecostals, you have Baptists. There are people who are named after, those are named after um, some of the characteristics of the group. Then you have people that are, are groups that are named after locations like the Moravians or the Coptic Christians. Or you have some groups named after their system of church government like the Presbyterians or the Congregationalists. And like the Nicolaitans or the Sadducees, the name identifies a persuasion, a practice, and practice that others that are familiar with it can identify it. A name identifies, in this context, a belief system, a way of interpreting scripture. And out of that way of interpreting scripture come some specific beliefs and actions and practices. And as such, it stands in contrast to other ways of interpretation of Scripture, like the Seventh-day Adventists. So based on how Jesus used labels to identify it, and Paul, I find myself free to use labels of identification for myself and for others. If the shoe fits, wear it. So, what is your identity this morning? Do you identify as a Christian? Have you been born from above? If you have, if you identify as a Christian, you must be born again. You must possess the Spirit of God, and you must be walking in that Spirit. That's what a Christian is. A real Christian. And are we identified with the obedient people of God? Are we a part of the chosen generation? Are we a part of the royal priesthood? Are we part of the holy nation, a peculiar people? 
Are we strangers and pilgrims, abstaining from fleshly lusts which war against the soul? Are we identified as a group with that? So that's the, uh, this morning is the anatomy of an identity. I'm talking about having a spiritual identity that you identify with. Understanding and knowing who you are, what you believe, how you fit in with a group, and how you fit, how that group fits in with history. Knowing where you are going individually and collectively. And that there, that there, I feel is an important part as we move forward, especially as we move outside of our culture and move forward in another culture. We need to know some of those things and we need to know them very well. And so the next message, then I would like to explain what our identity is, or maybe I say it should be, and how it works out in real life. Does having a strong identity shield ourselves from harm? Is having this strong identity to promote the gospel a good thing or not? Those are questions. I, I hope I was able to answer that, that both of them would be yes. If our identity is properly in its place as part of our experience, and it's not, as long as it's not leading out or ruling us, our identity has to be in its place. It cannot, the, the, the balancing effect would be that if you're, if you're so strong in your identity, you're no longer open to any other possible truths. But if you're too open to other possible truths, you can be persuaded and deceived easier. So there is the balance there. There is a balance. There is, as we seek the Lord together, and the burden, the burden is here is that we have seen too much, I feel, too much openness in our circles and the identities and our beliefs and our practices have changed to another identity. That is the concern. So if the identity is in its place and it's strong underneath the Lord Jesus Christ, underneath clear Bible study, underneath the security or the, um, not the security, yeah, the security would be some, but underneath the administration of a brotherhood together. And that identity is underneath that then having a strong identity is actually very, very important. That would be my, my, uh, my position. We need to have a strong identity with the truth so that we're not swayed from it and so that we can persuade others of it. Next message, I want to identify ten points of what we believe is what the Bible teaches. And some of those points will distinguish us from most other Christians and churches. That is not divisive. That is not sectarian. That is in defense of truth. 
We need to do it with humility, but we need to do that. So may God bless you.